Hello fellow adventurers and welcome to the Nerd Lab, where we transform our gaming passion into incredible game designs and learn how to nerd like a boss. My name is Marvin and I'm an ambitious game designer on my quest to develop a cooperative fantasy card game. For this podcast, my vision is to take you with me on this exciting journey. Together we will explore the secrets of different game mechanics and reach the next level as a game designer. Today we have a special guest in the Nerd Lab. Um, our guest today is not only a published board game designer, but also a former member of the very first Nerd Lab Mastermind group. Um, I, I have to confess I was very sad when he left our Mastermind group because I was really impressed by the flavor of his designs. And I think I could have learned quite a bit from him in that regard. So I hope he will share a lot of his uh, his secrets um, today in the show. Um, he also, um, I think, used a lot of his creativity and his gift of creating these breathtaking themes and stories um, to create really, really nice D&D content on Instagram, um, which I follow. And um, he also became a, a publisher of D&D Adventures um, over at the M DM Skilled. So please welcome with me Frank Tedeschi, uh, the founder of Deadbox Games. Um, welcome to the show, Frank. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Yeah, it's uh, it's great to talk to you again. Um, but before we dive into yeah your game design journey, um, tell us a bit more about yourself um, and yeah how your journey as a game designer started. Well, um, my name is Frank Tedeschi and. By day, I'm a biochemist. I run a research core at Case Western Reserve University. And I got into game design it probably when I started uh, running a Dungeons & Dragons campaign. You know, I started uh, you know, I started playing D&D in about 2008, 2009. And when I went to graduate school here in Cleveland, I didn't know anybody. And so I didn't really have a D&D group. I quickly realized that if I wanted to play D&D, I'd have to run the game myself. So I uh, you know, consumed every piece of media, podcasts, blogs, videos about how to Dungeon Master. And then started asking all of my uh, graduate school friends if they'd be interested in playing. And, and none of them really were. <laughs> but my wife, who's at med school at, at Case Western with me at the time, I was able to convince a lot of her med student friends to play D&D. A lot of them had played like second edition back in the past and they were interested in getting it back together. So I had this little, little band of med students who started out with me and I absolutely fell in love with game design at that point. I was writing adventures and, you know, customizing magic items and player content. And, you know, it didn't take long for that to blossom into me building, doing a lot of world building my own, you know, by the time I was running my second campaign, I built everything from the ground up. So the world, the gods, the religion. And during that time, I started to dabble in game. Like I got board game design because one of my friends, uh, Jason was in my Dungeons Dragons campaign and he knew I was making this world and, He was asking all these kind of prodding questions about the world building. He says, Frank, well, every great fantasy setting has a game. You know, Harry Potter has Quidditch. 
uh, you know, Dragon Chess from uh, from Game of Thrones. You know, what is what is the what is the game they play in your world? That's a very good question, that. by the way. Yeah, right. <laughs> so I was like, wow, that's a really great great question. Um, and so I I, I messaged him back. Kind of just just riffing real quick. I said, "Oh yeah, they they play a game called Alestone." Uh, and uh, the reason I said that is because it's kind of like a medieval play on beer pong, so like a <laughs> fantasy beer pong, Alestone. <laughs> you know, just, just messing with them. But he didn't he didn't get it. He just was like, "Cool, that sounds cool. You know, you should write some rules for that. That'd be fun." And now I'm like, "Well." Now I kind of have to make a game, I guess. <laughs> so I started to think to myself, well, what what would a game named Alestone be like? And, you know, who, who would be playing this game? And what kind of rules would there be? And, and what kind of pieces would they use? And so that's kind of set me on a huge tangent to create a game within my Dungeons & Dragons game. Uh and it was fun. I, I wrote some rules, and you know, you, you play with these kind of stone pieces, and you try to uh, capture your opponent's ale glass. It's kind of like a mix between chess and Chinese checkers. And after you know, showing it to my D and D group, and they played it, and they had fun. It was kind of like a you know, a novelty joke for a while. And then about six months later, after that, the word had kind of gotten around about you know, I designed this game called Alestone, and Jason, who is a brewer, he works at a brewery, brought it up to his boss that his friend Frank created a game called Alestone where you drink beer and you you know, play his board game. And he thought that was a really cool idea. And then they asked me if I wanted to work together to publish it and make it a real game. And that was pretty much how I started doing game design for real. And did, you know, playtesting and uh, you know, Alestone I published myself, which was an interesting experience to say the least. You know, sourcing all the pieces, doing all the, uh, working with the artists and getting everything to come together. Uh, but I had a lot of help, you know, through my my friends and the brewery, and so after that, everyone's question was always. Well, what's next, Frank? What, when you're in, when you're gonna make your next game? So uh, it's a slippery slope from there. I designed Goblin Teeth after that, and then you know continued to make Dungeons and Dragons content. So it's I don't know. I, I never really stopped designing games. It's 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 kind of inherent. That's 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 pretty cool. Working together with a brewery for this, it sounds like a perfect fit for your for your game, Alestone. It it was it, it was really a perfect match for us. Yeah. So how long was the process of creating Alestone? You said you um, did everything by yourself, working with the artists, uh, creating the components for the game, publishing it, and so on. So how long yeah. was really the process of it? I'd say. It took probably about a year and a half altogether, but there was about five or six months in a time where I didn't really do much with it other than, you know, reference it in my D&D game. And because I had, I kind of made it and we played it and then 
didn't really do much of it for a little while. And then as soon as we started talking about publishing it for real, I kind of jumped right back in full steam ahead. So I think it's been about a year really testing it with everyone I could convince and beg to <laughs> play it. Uh, and then I did all, all kinds of, yeah, I, I didn't know, I didn't really know anything about board game design or board game production for that matter. And so I, you know, I got a lot of samples. I tried different, a lot of different pieces. And one of the cool things about Aelstone is that it's, you know, it doesn't use any plastic bits. Uh, the, the pieces are made of actual stone. They're little square stones. And so, uh, which is, which is great. It's very thematic there. They have a nice weight to them. However, to get to that point, I tried all kinds of stuff, like little glass beads and, you know, big, big stones, big, smooth, circular ones that were unwieldy and heavy. <laughs> uh, and then the board, the board is not, is not a traditional board. It's made of fabric, actually. It's, it's slightly water repellent, so it's okay if you spill on it. And it has an aged look, so it, you know, if it stains, it'll blend in. It's just ideal for a game where you're drinking. <laughs> so this whole process was a it was a huge learning experience for me. And after about nine months, I think it all kind of came together where we had finished the art design and kind of picked out components. And then I contacted, you know, game design i guess some factories in china to get the boxes made and get the board printed on this fabric material and then had it all shipped to my house and then i personally assembled every single game so yeah it was not a short process but faster than one might think <laughs> so and how did you how did you publish it do you did you uh, run a kickstarter campaign or um did you just use your own uh, social media channels to publish it um via your yeah. website so primarily my own social media channels and then partially with the bottle house brewery so they bought a fair share of games up front in order to finance its creation. So uh, a, a little bit of everything kind of came together to, to make it happen. That's pretty cool if you have such a, a nice brand in the background that's already buying a lot of boxes before you produce it. That's uh, I think that's uh, the dream of most game designers. You have a strong, yes. strong partner in the background. Yeah, it, exactly. And, and it, it was great because they gave me like a brick-and-mortar store that I could sell it at right away too. So not only could you... Did they help finance it that way? But they would sell the game at the bar. So, and I didn't have to pay anything to get them to do that. They were just like, oh, they have they stock copies. If anyone wants one, they can buy one. So, cool. uh, kind of wor worked out best for for everyone. That's pretty nice. And yeah, that already shows a little bit um, why I really really like your um, the themes of your game because they are just uh, always. <laughs> always a very good fit at least from the games that i have seen um and uh, that's also true for the for your i think it was your next game uh goblin teeth yeah um which i, I unfortunately cannot show um the artwork of the game but um it also has a great art great artwork um and um yeah maybe you can talk a little bit more about um goblin teeth how how did you come to the uh, to the idea of creating a game about 
goblin teeth. I mean, goblins are quite common in the fantasy uh, world, mm -hmm. but what about their teeth that uh, that's so interesting to you? <laughs> This is a good question. Okay, so after I did Alestown, Alestown is a real abstract strategy game. And so after that, I wanted something that was going to be a little bit more lighthearted, that was portable, and you could play and not really get stressed out about it. Like a game that was fun for everyone, that you know didn't take too long to play and didn't involve like heavy mental thinking, which Alestone you know can if you get if you're facing a good opponent. It's it's like chess. So. I was like, man, I really want to have a, a, like a kind of light, fun game. So I started thinking about it, and I, I had this kind of random idea about goblins playing a game, but goblins aren't the brightest creatures on the block, and so none of them can agree on how you actually win the game. And so then this idea came that like goblins are all playing together, but they're all kind of playing their own separate game, and no one can really remember the rules so much. And so that was basically the core concept of this goblin game, a game where, you know, it's it's unclear how exactly you you win. Like, do you collect bombs to win or do you collect coins to win? And everyone has kind of a different idea. And so as the idea started to develop, it morphed into this game about goblins collecting stuff. And... But the, the core theme of there's different sets that you can collect stayed there. And it started to take shape where the game is about a group of goblins who are trying to kill time in between, you know, harassing adventurers. <laughs> and so they play with stuff that they use. They, have, they, they play with the things that they have around them. And so these the game was designed after these goblins which exist in my Dungeon Dragons campaign uh, that live in a place called the Emerald Wakes because the Emerald Wakes is this like huge tunnel system in under this mountain where the tunnel has been bored out by this creature which is a swarm of these worms and they leave behind these like emerald streaks in the caverns and so the goblins live down there and so they have these weird glow worms that make up this massive thing that makes the tunnels. There's emerald pieces and there's like copper coins and they make bombs. And this became the core items that you use in the game based upon these goblins that live there amongst all this stuff. Uh, and, and the reason why teeth got involved in it is, is a story, like a story reason from the, from our game is because The, the goblins uh, are in servitude to these bugbears in the game. Uh, and the bugbears are a bit cannibalistic, and they consume the goblins. Uh, and the story goes that they eat everything but the teeth. And so in these tunnels, they have all these items, mm -hmm. and you have a plethora of goblin teeth. So it's one of the things that they use in the game, and thus goblin teeth. <laughs> Pretty cool. So most of your ideas really come from from your D and D campaigns, right? Yes, almost all of them. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty cool because um, yeah, when we play um, D and D, we also uh, 
yeah, it creates so much story when you when you play the game. So, mm -hmm. and I have one player who writes down the entire story, and um, he has I don't know written down 50 pages or so um, oh, wow. for just a, for just a few a few sessions that we played. And I'm always um, when I read it after the session, I'm I'm pretty surprised how much of cool story and cool ideas we create as a group um, and that's really why i why i love uh, rpg so much because uh, this kind of uh, um, idea generation and world building um, and creativity is something that you can only find in uh, in an rpg from my perspective yeah that's right uh, and that's fantastic that's such a cool thing for him for him to do that's a that's a good that's a good player to have around yeah Tell him if he wants to join my game, you're welcome. <laughs> uh, no, I don't want to lose him. <laughs> and he is already in, in more than one group, so... Uh, oh, wow. Yeah, um, but when it comes to, to Gaplin Tees, I think I... I'm, I'm, maybe I'm wrong, but I think I remembered reading something about uh, the Festival of Teeth um, in your Instagram account. Is this right, or is, am I mixing things up here? Uh, I think that... That is a thing I made up. I made up one time was the Festival of Teeth celebration of goblins, and there's not much to it other than that. <laughs> okay, because I, I just I think I read it on your Instagram and I I thought that was a, this was a cool idea, um, which I could conclude uh, include in one of my D D campaigns as well, because we we were just uh, yeah fighting goblins uh, as many people do. So okay, but um. When it comes to the to the to the game, so can you explain a little bit more um, the mechanics? So how does Goblin Teeth um, sure. actually work? Because um, you mentioned these different um, interests of uh, gathering stuff, but how does it uh, look like when it comes to game mechanics? Absolutely. Um, so in the game, you're trying to collect a set of stuff, and so the the story of the game is that you're all goblins, and you are trying to become best goblin. And the way you become best goblin is to offer up a, a set of items to Big Boss. And then Big Boss will proclaim you best goblin, and then all is well in the world. And so there are, when you start the game, there are three different offerings that you can create, and these are three different sets. So one offering might be like two coins, two glowworms, and two uh, bombs. And then another one might be You know, three arrowheads and three emeralds. And so the object of the game is to collect these items, and once you have a set, you win. And so I, I want I want to pause just for a moment and say the art for these items and for the goblin teeth in general is fantastic. And if uh, you have the chance, you should look it up either uh, deadboxgames.com or on our Instagram. At Zedbox Games, because our artist Derek Now, uh, who works for DreamWorks feature in LA, making movies, is fantastic. He is just an incredible artist, and I'm very lucky to have him as my kind of creative artist partner. And okay, back to game mechanics. Yes, that's so right. I, I can I can, I can say geez. that this is absolutely right. The the artwork looks really really cool. Um, alone the box art of uh, Goblin Tees uh, is an eye-catcher. Um, and um, if you want to look at it, uh, I will definitely share the link in the show notes so that you can um, can find the box and the artwork because it's just 
yeah, just looking really, really nice. Thank you. I, I, I loved it. We went, we went round and round a lot on what the box should look like. And when we finally came to this idea, I was like, this is it. Great. Okay. We've got it. Um, so the mechanics. So basically, Goblin Teeth is a dice game. And each person has three dice. And you roll them. And then those are the values that you have to use during a round. And so at the start of the round, you deal out a number of cards equal to the number of players. And they're all face up except for one. You always have one face down. And so you use your dice to bid on these cards. So it's a dice bidding game. And so in the pot, if you have, you know, so if it's just if just me, me and you, Marvin, playing, uh, you would have two cards, one up, one down. And so you can look at the offering cards and kind of decide in your head which one you might want to go for. And so if there's an arrowhead showing, I say, okay, I might try to do the arrowhead offering card. And so I would bid on that card. So you can also bid on this card, and we have three dice, and we keep going until they're all spent. And then whoever has the highest sum on that card at the end of the round takes it. And there's really only two rules. The first rule is that the sum of your own dice can't be over 10. So, you know, my dice, my bid has to go up to 10 and no more. Uh, and the reason why that is is because goblins are stupid and they don't know what comes after 10. <laughs> so if you, if you have uh, two sixes and a five for your dice – you really can only put a six on that card because if you do five and a six, that would be 11. You think, you don't know, you're a goblin, that's a high number. Um, and two sixes, of course, would be 12. So, so there's a little bit of strategy there in you know trying to make the highest sum without going over 10. And so the second rule is that you can't willingly create a tie. So if I have a six on a card, you can't also place a six. Because that would be a tie. You don't know what would happen. You'd probably just end up hurting each other because your goblins is what you do. So to avoid any kind of rough and tumble play, it's you know no ties allowed. And that, those are really only two caveats of placing dice. So you can use your dice to bid on cards, but there's one last thing that comes into the gameplay, which is goblins cheat. <laughs> so there's a whole deck of cards called the cheat deck. And you draw these cards, and they're essentially action cards. They allow you to do all kinds of fun manipulations of the dice. So you can re-roll your dice. You can move them from one card to another card. You can uh, re-roll someone else's dice or you know, trade out what card is, uh, is in the pot. You know, Draw a new one. And so there's all kinds of really fun manipulations that can be done with the cheat cards. So it's a little bit of a strategy game because you're always thinking about your best die placement and how to place them without breaking the two goblin rules and then how to best use and utilize your cheat cards. So then, and there's two types of cheat cards too. There's action cards which are one use and they just happen and the effect takes place and they're discarded. But there's also ongoing. So there's a ongoing call card which you can lay down in front of you 
called the Oracle. And so if you have the Oracle in play, anytime you draw a cheat card, you draw two. Pick your favorite and discard the other one. And so there's all kinds of ongoing cards that allow you to do cool things. But also there's negative ones, which you can play on your opponents. Ones that, you know, make it uh, more difficult for them. They have to reroll all sixes. And so... There's, it's a little bit of take that as you're kind of playing action cards and cheat cards on your opponents. Um, but there's so many of them, and there's so many different types of things they can do. Uh, it's not very vindictive like a lot of take that cards are. You kind of just roll with the punches and, and keep going. Yeah, that sounds that sounds like a very cool game. And also it sounds like you would be feeling really like being a goblin so the mechanics really work well with the theme um, and i'm curious how you achieve that so um, i have the feeling or you, you mentioned it already that all of your game designs really start from maybe a D&D campaign or an idea that yeah. you have in that campaigns um, and it seems that the theme and the story and that core idea really um is the baseline of your of your game design and that that you wrap the mechanics around those um those ideas is this true or do you sometimes also start with some kind of mechanic in mind that you all definitely want to put into the game um and try to find the theme that is matching the mechanic instead of the other way around no you're you're absolutely right with the the former these These things come from the story perspective of the game uh, that just, I feel, lends itself to a board game. Uh, and I think that drawing inspiration from a living world, such as a D&D campaign, gives a backdrop and a kind of self-contained world to the board game itself that has this like real rich texture to it. Because, you know, this game about goblins, goblin teeth, you know, there's a lot in there that comes from the story part about from my from my game, from the D&D game. It's like these these emeralds and these glowworms, and they kind of and they like live in this cave. So a lot of the stuff is, uh, you know, it has this, it's shadowy or it's dark because it takes place in a kind of lightless place, but everything's glowing. So these glowworms and everything's kind of shiny. And I think that storytelling is one of my, you know, biggest uh, interests. And my D&D game really reflects that. And so when I do board game design, I, I bring all of those storytelling elements that I've learned and try to incorporate them in my game design. And so it, it, may, it may be sound a little silly, but I've spent a lot of time thinking like a goblin <laughs> and role-playing as a goblin. And so when it came time to make mechanics for a goblin teeth, it came very naturally to me. Maybe that's a good so, maybe that's a good advice for 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 uh, aspiring game designers uh, to behave like the the main character of your game for quite a while at home, mm -hmm. and then uh, it might be easier for you to come up with the mechanics. So yeah, I 
I really think that is a is a good strategy. You know, I I don't know if you behaved like a goblin at home with your wife and uh, and kids, or was it just in the D and D campaigns all the time? <laughs> all the time. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so when I'm a DM, I, I like to do a lot of role playing and acting, and you know, I do. I'm one of those DMs that does voices and the whole thing, and so when you meet a goblin, it's it's always. Oh, how are you doing today? And so I I get fully immersed in the role. And I think that that is a unique experience for for me and my and my players to try to you know, do the storytelling in, a, in the most immersive way possible. Um, but that's really helped me. But I think about this when I do game design. I think about like, okay, well, what is this character like, and where are they from, and and how do they What's their family like, and how do they? Why are they the way that they are? What are their secrets? What are their hopes? And so I use this to make my stories and my characters as three-dimensional as physically possible. And so even with my other games, you know, I'm I'm designing in the middle of designing a couple of other board and card games, and each one I think tells a story, and They're all kind of role playing in in my mind. You know, this, I have a game about raising baby dragons called Hatchlings, and you play as these characters from this village that find these baby dragons, and you're trying to raise them and train them to get them to leave the village before they destroy it. And so I thought a lot about these dragons and how they, as kind of pseudo toddlers, would act and luckily i have a little dragon toddler of my own at home and so i have experience <laughs> with how you know young things destroy all the time and i i use those experiences to kind of inform my game design and try to think about like what you know what does the dragon want and how does the dragon react and what happens when a dragon gets cranky because it hasn't napped so <sighs> yeah using using storytelling to build upon mechanics and immersive game design is something I very much aspire to and try to focus on. Yeah, so um, back in the time when you were part of the Mastermind group, you were starting out with the with this Hatchlings idea. Um, mm -hmm. And I was, yeah, from the first moment, I really loved the idea of it because, um, I mean, everyone who likes a fantasy theme would like to to hatch a little baby dragon i mean that's oh yes <laughs> that's just uh that's just awesome and um yeah designing a game around it um is a is a really nice idea and um the mechanics that you showed me at that time were also very interesting so at what state is the game today so it's is that a really good stage um i play tested it at a couple of different um protospiels and The last time I tested it was in February, just before the pandemic, uh, at Cleveland Protospiel, and it went fantastic. I played it a number of times and got some good feedback, but the core of the game and the mechanics are uh, pretty much set, and I've been fiddling with all the extra fun, you know, story building, uh, storytelling elements, you know, trying to make it, you know, a grander scope, but The game as it stands now, I, I've been, I, I actually submitted it to the pitch project, 
with a bunch of other board games uh, designers uh, pitching in this big virtual pitch event. And so uh, I'd love to pitch it to some publishers to kind of get it picked up because it's it's ready. Cool. So while you were talking about um, pitching, so let me let me switch to the next or transition to the next question. So sure. um, while you were Ailstone, you were um, publishing by yourself, um, mm -hmm. working together with with the brewery. But uh, Goblin Tees um, is a game that you published uh, with a publisher. So mm -hmm. um, can you tell us a little bit about um, the reason why you decided to go the publisher route after you started with self-publishing um, with your first game? Absolutely. And this is this is a an interesting story. So when I was designing Goblin Teeth, I met uh, I I talked to Derek about doing the art, and Derek was fully on board. And he, so we started in with the idea that. We was going to do the art. As soon as the game was done, we were going to launch it on Kickstarter. This was the plan from the very beginning. And so, you know, I built up a little bit of following with Alestone and the brewery and everything. And I thought that, you know, this is something that we could very much do. And so I had started taking the game around to conventions and getting as much playtesting and feedback as humanly possible. And so I went to origins down columbus and i was playtesting it with a group of people called the um, game designers guild and as i was there i playtested a round of goblin teeth um with joel colombo and this guy who i did never met before in my life named peter hayward peter hayward and we played it and peter was like This is really great. I like I love the art, and you know what are you going to do with this game? I told my mom as well. I want to kickstart it, and he said to me, "Do you really want to do that? Are you sure you don't want to have a publisher do it? Because I would publish this game." And I was taken a little taken aback. I was like, "Oh, like, what, what do you mean? Like actually publish it, or like you know you think I should pitch it?" He's like, "No." Uh, Like actually, I think I would I would do it. I'm with Jelly Bean Games, and and this you you have inadvertently made a Jelly Bean game that fits <laughs> perfectly into our catalog. And I was very surprised by this. And, and so I almost immediately called Derek, and I was like, "What are we gonna do? We, uh, you know, this guy Peter from Jelly Bean Games seems to really like it, and maybe wants to publish it. Is this something we're interested in?" I mean, it wasn't even an option. It wasn't even on our radar up until the point that he play, played it and liked it. Uh, so long story short, we you know, gave Peter a copy of it. He played it a bunch of times and decided to you know, offer us a contract. And so we signed it, and the rest is history. You know, we did Kickstarter last October, and uh, it was very successful. We had a lot of fun doing it, and Peter's been absolutely tremendous. And the game is actually shipping right now. So backers have started to get it. So the experience was, one, surprising because we didn't expect to publish with a publisher. Um, but also a huge relief because after doing Ailstone, which was an incredible amount of work, 
I learned a lot, so I thought I think it was going to be easier the second time around. But having to run your own Kickstarter campaign, especially when it's your first one, is an uphill battle. And Derek and I kind of came to the conclusion that perhaps letting Peter publish it and kickstart it would allow us the time to do to work on other projects and also get a little bit of you know game design cred uh, as you might say from having a game under our belts and being on the inside during a campaign for a Kickstarter campaign so when we go to do our own in the future you know it's not our first rodeo that's pretty cool so I'm very much interested in in that because I'm in the middle on on my own my own way to um to um create a Kickstarter campaign or publish mm -hmm. a game and um I would like to understand how much you were involved during the Kickstarter campaign so what were your your tasks as a as the game designer while the publisher was uh, uh going through Kickstarter Yeah so I'd say that I was pretty involved in the entire process up to Kickstarter so, you know, even though they signed the game, I was still doing playtesting, still giving feedback, um, you know, doing iterations and and feedback for the art and everything like this. And so and man, Peter was basically like, you know, Frank, you can be in, as involved as you want to be. And of course, we, you know, we love to have your feedback as the designer. And so when it came time to do the Kickstarter, you know, Vaughn Reynolds made our page for us. And so he did a lot of the layout work for the actual Kickstarter campaign. And so basically Derek supplied him with all the art assets and then he kind of put it together. As far as the actual running of the campaign, I didn't do hardly much of it at all. Uh, other than if you watch the video, Uh, I do the goblin voiceover for the whole video, <laughs> uh, and I wrote the like introduction text for the game. So, you know, other than that, it was all publishers, the publisher show. Cool. And um, if you could go back in time, would you would you do it the same way, or would you would you go the self-publishing route if you had the chance to change it? Mm, I would probably do it the same way. Yeah, I think that the experience of having a publisher do it is absolutely invaluable. And being able to see it from the inside one time is just a lot more useful than trying to go into it blind and you know hoping you do it right. But the and, next game you are going to publish, would you do this again with a publisher or would you go, go through Kickstarter then? <laughs> Well, so it depends on the game. So I learned a lot <laughs> about, you know, Kickstarter is a whole beast on its own, okay? And so, you know, building your audience, your production costs, you know, your, your funding goal. And I think that as a first-time designer, if you have a funding goal that is very high, you have, you're not doing yourself any favors. You know, there, there is a very kind of uh, fine-tune nature to how you set your funding goal and how big your audience is uh, to whether or not you're going to succeed. 
And so my so hatchlings, if I was going to kickstart hatchlings, uh, I would not do it because hatchlings is a big box game that has a lot of components that I don't think I could bring in enough people to hit the our, our like you know threshold goal there. I and I, I wouldn't do that. But I, what I would do is publish something small, like the card game I was working on. Uh, also, while I was in the Mastermind group, which you might remember, uh, it's called Lithic. It's a game about um, people who magically manipulate stone. And so you kind of... Uh, it's, a, it's a card game where you are extracting... You're basically dungeon delving, except for instead of, you know moving through the dungeon, you're manipulating the rooms yourself because you're using your stone magic to kind of move them around. And so this game is just cards, and it has a much smaller footprint, much smaller run printing costs, and that's the kind of game that I would take to Kickstarter myself first. And then you can build up your audience, and so every subsequent Kickstarter is easier because you have people who hopefully already like you as a designer and like your games and you can continue to build that audience with every subsequent Kickstarter building up to a point in which you can launch a bigger, more complex game that's more expensive. That sounds like a pretty good strategy. And um, since you're working on so many games, I'm pretty confident that uh, you will climb that ladder in the future. <laughs> eventually. eventually. When so, But it's yeah. I mean, I mean this, I, this gets on to our next question, I guess. Yeah, I mean, that's not only you are not only working on board games, do you? I mean, uh, I follow right. your your kick, uh, your Instagram account, and um, you post there a lot of uh, Dungeons and Dragons 5e content um, mm -hmm. with a lot of uh, very interesting magic items, uh, dungeon master tips, uh, and um, yeah, for me, it's a uh, quite handy to go over those uh, those items and your posts um, because um, even if I do not use them one 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 by one but uh, they spark some ideas in my head and um, I create uh, oh, yeah. items and ideas around it and um, so I think your content is pretty nice um, not only from the content perspective but also how you present it again with the artwork and story around it so How and why did you why did you start that uh, that journey on um, on Instagram with this uh, Dungeons and Dragons content? So I like board games a lot, but I'd have to say that D and D is my absolute true passion. Designing for it for me is just so much fun, and I never stop having ideas for adventures and characters. Uh, in fact, I was working on uh, an adventure just before our call here today, and Derek shares a Derek, our artist, shares a similar passion for board games. Uh, sorry, for for Dungeons Dragons and for role playing games. And so he and I decided decided to kind of move into that direction. One because it's our major passion. And two, because of the pandemic. Without being able to get together all the time and play test board games, it's really hard to make any developmental leaps with those. So I found it a lot easier to do RPG design, where I could still run stuff and play test in my regular D&D group online and keep moving that forward. Because I can do design and writing 
you know, by myself at home whenever all the time. And the third compounding factor is that uh, we had our second kid. And so by time we're getting together with a board game group again has been diminished because of that. And so I find myself still being able to do writing and game design for, for D and D in the odd hour of the night as I'm, you know, waking and feeding baby Lily and doing all those kind of fatherly duties. So yeah. yeah, our, in, our Instagram is geared towards fifth edition content and Derek uh, has done a tremendous job in making it be presented in a way which is interesting and useful and also has a lot of cool art with it. Um, I'm, I'm constantly telling him, he's like, oh, you don't, it doesn't have to be crazy, you know, just just put something up together. He's like, no, 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 I'm going to make it, he's like, just wait. And he's, he's always uh, doing lots of new custom art for it, which is a little, which is absolutely fantastic. I, I love that he does it. So. so what's your favorite magic item that you have posted so far? Oh, I think that one of my favorite ones is the um, ring of five foot teleportation. And it's something that is, so one of my design philosophies for, for D and D for magic items is to design things that are not just powerful or cool, but things that help enhance or focus uh, or facilitate interesting play. How can we use, you know, using magic items in ways which are non-traditional or, you know, that spark more role playing, you know, in, instead of just saying, oh, I have a plus five Vorpal sword and cut his head off. Like, that's all fine and good. But doing something, having a underpowered magic item, which forces you to be more creative to create a unique experience with you and your friends around the table is really what we're trying to aim for. So the Ring of Five Four Teleportation is something that's not powerful, but could be used in creative ways to get around certain obstacles. So, you know, something like a dungeon portcullis, which for a low-level party is, you know, can be problematic. With the Ring of Five Four Teleportation, you can actually get, at least one person can get through there. And then maybe you take it off and give it to another person and they use it to get through there. And so you, you know, can use this line of teleporting through these bars. And it's like, you know, you have to, you have to kind of think of good uses for these items to, to really maximize their, <laughs> their use. That's very, in, that's very interesting. So uh, I like that very much. And, um, yeah, with the, with your Instagram account, um, you also moved into the direction of uh, not only presenting that kind of content uh, via Instagram, you also um, started to publishing um, it yourself mm -hmm. uh, via the DM skills. So um, tell us a bit more about um, what kind of stuff you published there and um, yeah, where this started. Did it start before the Instagram account or after the Instagram account or was it all part of a, uh, a big a big plan where Instagram is your marketing channel or yeah, tell yeah. us how this all works together. It's all part of the plan, Marvin. <laughs> the, the, big, plan. the big Frank Tadeshi plan, I know it. <laughs> that's exactly right. Yeah, yeah, Derek and I have many conversations about what the, what the plan is. Um, and, and, you know, we decided that we wanted to be RPG publishers. 
And so Instagram is our kind of social media outlet where we post and trying to gather an audience and get a following people. And that's why, you know, we, we put out not just, you, we try to do things which are not just like throwaway. Um, every Monday we're posting magic items that I think that people could really use in their game. And I hope that they save them and, and hang on to them. And then, you know, we also provide perspectives and philosophy about gaming and like, you know, how to deal with problematic players and, and how to how to enhance your storytelling and how, how to make NPCs come alive. You know, things that I think could really be be useful. So to, do, to hopefully get people interested in, in following and uh, you know checking out our kind of you know, whole little game world here. And so that's so that's that's where we're kind of plugged into for our marketing and for our social media. But we knew that we wanted to do publishing. And so we, we, we went back and forth a lot about oh, do we publish on our website, do we publish on Drive Through RPG, or you know, do we do print, do we do PDF and or the DMs Guild? And we kind of came to the conclusion that the DMs Guild is you know, the single uh, biggest proprietor of 5e content. Uh, it's where I go when I'm looking for 5th edition, you know, adventure or something. And so we decided that we would try to break out and make our name for ourselves on the DMs Guild. And so the first adventure that we worked on was a adventure called the Adventures Guild Admissions Office. So this is a like a short one session adventure that I wrote as part of my regular campaign and I ran my players through it as part of their whole story. Uh, and it's about essentially joining an adventurous guild in order to get all the perks and benefits that come along with that. You know, in our, in our campaign world, you have to be part of the adventurous guild in order to leave the city to go adventuring because it's, you know, there's a bunch of story reasons why. Um, but after writing it, I thought this would make a good introductory adventure for, anyone because essentially what it is is to join the adventurers guild you have to pass the entrance examination with the guild and so you basically go to the guild in the morning uh and they're like okay give us your name okay who are you great uh you know you're on door three and they put you through like a fake dungeon crawl test and so it's a it's essentially a dungeon which the guild has designed to be like a real dungeon, except for that they, they made it to be that way. And so it's a little bit purposely devious in the traps and hazards and puzzles in which it has in it because it's there to test your metal to see if you're good enough to be in the in the guild. That sounds like and it so, would be perfect for for someone who is just starting out with Dungeons and Dragons, who's probably not not that experienced with it. Um mm -hmm. At least that's what, what comes to my mind. Maybe not only those people, but um, if I would just starting out, this sounds like something that I as a dungeon master can also maybe use to test my skills or to, to yes. learn how these, how these um, dungeons maybe should look like that I create later on. Yeah, exactly. I think it's, it's great for beginner DMs. I put a lot of my own kind of philosophy and Dungeon Master advice in there. Um, well, one thing that we did is we put uh, footnotes throughout the adventure. So the adventure has like your kind of very typical 
you know, dungeon setup and all the rules, etc. But anytime I had a personal experience with like one of the traps or things that I found that my players would often do, I put a footnote and say, hey, you know, th- this is how I ran it in my game. You know, this might this might also work for you. Uh, you know, you know, keep these things in mind. And I've, I've had people, you know, dungeon masters tell me that, that they found this very useful uh, things to, to look out for and to keep in mind during the game. And so it's it's a th- it's for third level players, and its real focus is a little bit the opposite of most introductory adventures. I mean, a lot if you play D anD D, usually your first adventure is go to this cave, kill the kobolds, or go to this house and kill these rats. It's it's real hack and slash. There's very little story, and and it's. It basically just a series of combat encounters. So this adventure is the opposite of that, where it's a dungeon crawl, but the real focus is on exploration, traps, hazards, and a big puzzle. There is combat in there also, but it leans heavily on the other two pillars of D&D. So it's also good for a, an experienced dungeon master who's starting a new campaign who wants to do something different than the usual hack and slash stuff. So, I mean, you probably learned this about about me uh, during our our discussions, but I love puzzles and I love traps. And so the adventure, the, in order to leave the dungeon, it's basically an escape room. And there's a series, like a multi-step series of things you have to do to activate this flamethrower machine to, you know, find the key that you need to escape the dungeon, and so it's it's a it's a real different take on the introductory adventure, and that's that's why we want, that's why we wanted to do it. And of course, Derek did all the art, and he absolutely crushed it. You can go to the DM's Guild and check out the the cover art and some of the inside pieces. Uh, it's 22 pages, and it's filled with maps and art and there's even like a quick reference guide in there for dungeon masters. Cause I, when I write stuff, I'll, I'll write a map and I'll basically run a whole adventure from the map that I've detailed. And I try to use that idea in the module as well. So it's like, you could read the whole thing, but uh, you could run it directly from this map with all the details on it. You know, just that one, just that one page. Cool. So I know that I have a lot of, uh, game designers in my audience that also really like playing D&D or RPGs mm-hmm. and some of them uh, definitely are also thinking about self-publishing their own adventures and um, via DM's Guild or um, drive through RPG or so. Mm-hmm. So um, what would be would be your advice to those to those people? How should they should they start? What is uh, what is what do they really need to um, to to take that step to to publish stuff via the DM skill? So my advice to them would be to first think about what you're publishing. Is it going to be free? Is it going to be ten dollars, five dollars? You know, what is what is the ultimate goal of putting it up there? If you were just doing it for fun, and you just want to put something up there, it's great. You do whatever you want. Um, 
But if your goal is to be an RPG designer, you know, you, you really got to think about, you know, do you want to put this up for a dollar so that more people will see it and you can hopefully make a name for yourself? Or are you going to do put it up for five dollars and say, you know, this is a premium product. Uh, we spent a lot of time and money and energy in, in, in art and design work for this, you know, pay it. Yeah, it's, it's worth something. It has inherent value. And, you know, not try not try to just spread everything as far and wide as, as humanly possible. So really think about what the end goal is for publishing a product or the adventure. And, and think about who the audience is. You know, I'll, I'll go ahead and say that you know, publishing adventures is not the biggest audience. You know, publishing just for Dungeon Masters is, is probably not smart, even though it's what I'm doing. <laughs> um, the best thing to do is player content. So if you've got um, good designs for classes and magic items and feats, you know, this is what the audience is just so much bigger because you have so many more players than you have Dungeon Masters. And so you're you're much more likely to hit a bigger fan base that way. But it's not as fun. I like designing other stuff. <laughs> That's cool. Um, um, secondly is just do it. And get, start start designing and then get feedback for it and then put it together. Uh, the sooner you make progress, the sooner you'll put it up and the, the happier you will be. And I think that's you know, that's one of the things that Derek and I see eye to eye with is that we don't like to kind of sit idle. We really want like to get things done and uh, and see it through to the end. Yeah, that's very good. A very good habit um, that most game designers um, should have, but not all of them have. And um, when it comes to putting stuff up there, it typically it's uh, much more uh, than you think about in the beginning in the beginning you often think yeah i just i mean i run this uh, this uh, adventure anyway with my group so i'm just putting it on there so um how does the the work really look like that you have to put into into a product that you want to sell there for money so um what is the percentage of time you spend for i don't know building an audience on instagram uh, time of uh, you spend for editing doing the artwork um structuring your your content and i don't know what else uh, kind of work you have to do or tasks you have to do what is the percentage of these different work packages so doing the instagram is about 100% of our time and then <laughs> everything else is another 100% um so to actually running the instagram and doing these these posts is more work than you might imagine it is um so the way we do it is usually i i will To des I'll design something and I'll write, you know, Monday's post and Tuesday's post, Wednesday's post, um, and then Derek will go in and we'll discuss and edit them as needed, and then he'll start to build them. And so we build these multi-slide carousels, um, but there's a lot that goes into structure. And if you look at the post, you see we we care a lot about our presentation and the structure of them. We try to try to make it make sense and be consistent. And so you know, we spend, I know Derek spends probably about five hours or more a week doing the Instagram content. And I probably spend 
about three hours a week doing that. So it's it can be it can be a lot because you know we're not just posting memes all the time, which would be a lot easier. <laughs> <laughs> um, but you know something that I've, I've noticed, which people might find interesting, is that uh, the memes I have posted on my Instagram account they do exceptionally well. And we're, we're talking about you know thousands of likes. Uh, reach thousands of people and thousands of impressions um, but people don't really follow us from that it's reaching a bunch of people a lot of people are interacting with it but we don't get any new followers from it maybe one if it's particularly funny but our high what we consider our high value content like our magic items or our NPCs or our you know, what is wrong with my gaming table post that we've made, we don't see nearly as much interaction, you know, ranging usually from 100 to 300 likes on it, but a lot more people are saving them and following us from those posts. So, you know, your the content that you post when you're building your audience, uh, it's not all created equal. So, so if you're going to spend a less significant amount of time uh, on something like building a social media following, you have to know what is being what is being productive for you and what is not. And so that's part of our time. And then I spend probably I don't know five hours a week just writing adventures and NPCs and magic items on its own. A little bit of everything everywhere. I have multiple adventures where um, I'm writing the uh, sequel to Adventures Guild, which is called Adventures Guild Library of Past Lives, which is a ancient library that details the prior civilization uh, from my campaign. And so there's a second Adventures Guild test that you kind of have to, to complete, which deals with the library. Uh, and I'm running two or three other small, like one or two page, um, two page adventures. So it's something that fits literally on a front, front and back sheet of paper um, that, you know, isn't nearly as much work or content as something like Adventures Guild um, that we can put out hopefully for free. So we can kind of showcase, hey, we're, you know, we're doing these big adventures that have a lot of content, a lot of art, but we also have these smaller packages that are free, and you can take and see, get an idea of my kind of game design philosophy, and you know, I I like to design and get combat encounters that are not just combat encounters, you know, things that um, you know, interesting environments and twists on what the NPCs are doing to make it basically two encounters happening at the same time, uh, which I find it to be a lot more interesting than just basically um, a slugfest until the end. So. And then what is about, what is about editing, putting in, putting it all together, making from your, I mean, 
creating this in your mind is and putting it on on paper is is fine but then you you still have to to structure it so that other people are, can understand it as well i mean these dm notes for example you typically don't mm -hmm. do them for yourself but it's just editing this so that others can use it as well as you could uh, who came up with the idea so how much is really the part of uh, making it um in the end uh, so good yeah. that other people can understand it i This, this is a great question, and I don't think a lot of people realize that I spend probably just as much time just doing that part of the editing, structuring it in a way which makes sense, and then laying it out in the actual adventure module in a way which flows, makes sense, and fits. I spend just as much time doing that as I do the initial design. Uh, and, and luckily, Derek does, since he does, Derek does the layout, he deals a lot with uh, the how am I going to make this all fit on this page. Um, but we we think probably a lot more than most people in DM skill, but we think very deeply about the page spread and running the adventure and running encounters from and not having to like flip back and forth on a page. And so, you know, when you enter the final room of Adventures Guild, There's a bunch of stuff in there, but it's all on the same two pages. So you should ideally have just that open and not have to go anywhere else. And so, and, and even when there's NPCs, the NPC block will be on that page too, so you don't have to flip to the appendix to look at the NPC if you don't want to. So, you know, these kinds of design ideas take more time and a lot more stress trying to figure out how to make a fit. Uh, then maybe it's worth it. But <laughs> you know, I, I mean, from a dungeon master's perspective, this is very, very much appreciated. So I recently ran the um, uh, the starting adventure from uh, the world of Ravnica, mm -hmm. and it was a pain. It was a pain to uh, to find this adventure, uh, the the right pieces um, in this big campaign book, um, and mm -hmm. you always had to. Um, To, to search the the searchable PDF and even then I was uh, it it took me quite a while to find the the spots that I were looking for but um so this from yeah. a game's perspective I think this is very much appreciated and if you want to to make a name to publish future stuff uh, I think it's worth to yeah to to take a look at these aspects as well yeah and that's uh, I'm I'm glad you told me that because that is You know, I've, I've had the same exact issue when you're trying to run an adventure and, you know, trying to find stuff. Like, you know, it mentions an item and you're like, okay, tell me more about this item. And you can't find where it's detailed or what it is or where you're supposed to find it. And you're like, yeah, I had exactly the same situation. It was about uh, an item and it was not really described in the, in the adventure. And mm -hmm. it was also not really described in the item section of the book. It was uh, in an uh, in a, mon a specific monster wa was having this item, um, and there you were able to find it. But you had to look at the, look up the monster and then read the description of the monster and their special ability, and there there was the item described. So it was pretty difficult to find. Yeah, yeah I see. Now, these are good things. If if you come across things that you find to be particularly aggravating or irritating you let me know because you know these are the kind of things that we aim to you know i don't know solve but at least try to mitigate in our in our game design these, these are good things to think about absolutely so frank you seem to be 
uh, working on many, many different projects. So before we, before we, um, end the session today, maybe give us an advice how to handle so many different projects at the same time. Um, how do you, how do you do that? Um, do you have some special, uh, magic item that helps you, um, mm. to, to organize your time or are you cloning yourself or how do you do that? <laughs> Mostly cloning, yeah, yeah. I mean, you're a biochemist. Uh, I, I think you maybe you figured something out there. Yes. Well, <laughs> yeah. My my secret is I'm a biochemist, and so be, being efficient is is part of the job. Um, well, I use a lot of my time driving uh, to do game design thinking. Um, so it, every day to and from work, I have about like a 20 to 25 minute drive, and that is when I do a lot of design work and I'll like dictate to my phone or, you know, write ideas down when I, when I get to where I'm going. And the, the real secret is Google docs. I have a lot of Google docs and, you know, auto saves, you can open them up anywhere, either on my phone or on my computer. And so, you know, anytime I get inspired, I make a new Google doc. And then what I like to do is share, share it all with Derek And whatever excites him, that's what I work on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, I think it's very cool to have a, to have a design partner to, um, to share ideas with. I think this is. It's, it's actually terrific to have someone, you know, anyone to bounce ideas off of. And I, and I would, um, recommend anyone in, in getting into game design to find someone that shares either a passion for design or just a passion for games that they can discuss ideas with because, you'll find that if you can get them excited about something, you know, maybe other people will be excited about it too. And so it's a good, it's a good way to try to find out how to focus your attention. Thank you for the advice. I, I really like it. And um, I mean, is there anything else you would like to, to share with the audience before, uh, before we close the call? Keep gaming. <laughs> yeah. Don't, don't forget to roll with advantage and, uh, You know, tell more stories. Storytelling is a beautiful part of the world and about gaming. Um, and it's, it's something that I think everyone can learn a lot from and have a little, uh, have a really great experience having a good time with your friends around the table. So thank you. Thanks for, you know, thanks for listening to me and all my pontification about games and. <laughs> Yes, thank, thank you so much, Frank. It was a great, a great show today. So um, tell the people who want to want to find your stuff, um, how can they find they find you again? What's your website? What's your Instagram account? Um, share it, share it again. Sure, uh, deadboxgames.com. You can find us. You can sign up for our, our mailing list, our newsletter, um, which we really only ever post to give out discounts or announce new games. So you know we don't. We don't bug you. We don't spam you. Goblins hate spam, and so we don't we don't do that too. Um, our Instagram account is at Deadbox Games. Follow us for D D content, and if you really want to see cute pictures of my kids uh, being nerds like me, you can also find that in our Instagram stories and uh, Facebook. If you look up Frank Tedeschi on Facebook, you can follow me, and uh, and I have a, a page for Aelstone for Goblin Teeth. If you want to see what's going on. Um, with that and so oh and the dms guild of course if you search for adventurers guild on the dms guild you will find our adventure it's five bucks and 
I'd say it's well worth your time to check out. If, if for nothing else, buy it for Derek's art because <laughs> he is absolutely the man. He's got he's got a still life painting that he did of like it's this uh, you know, lich. He's got all these candles and there's always like fruit and uh, you know meat and armor. It's very much like a kind of Renaissance still life. And I was like, man, how do you how do you even come up with this stuff? It's incredible. So if nothing else, bye for that. Okay. Thank you very much, Frank. You can find also all the all the links in the show notes. So if you didn't remember them, just click on the link in the show note and you will uh, get directly to uh, Frank's work. So thank you a lot. And um, until next time, keep shooting for the moon and tell stories. Goodbye, everyone. Bye.